Worldwide, 70 million people have it. A quarter of all adults will get it. I'm talking about AFib. This quivering or irregular heartbeat, arrhythmia, which can lead to blood clots and strokes and heart disease. And about 2.7 million Americans are living with it right now. But there's this really cool treatment that doesn't always work, but often does. It's called electrical cardioversion. So it's this procedure where there, there's an electrical shock that's given to the heart to reset the heart rhythm back to its normal, regular pattern. The normal sinus rhythm, it's called. And the shock is given through these patches applied to the outside of the person's chest. AFib. This physical condition mirrors a spiritual condition that has our hearts out of beat with God's. Needing a reset. That's the story that we're finding today in Ezra chapter 9 and 10. So we've caught up with the God of the reset, bringing his people out of his kindness according to his word, Jeremiah 25, after 70 years in Babylon, he brings the first wave back. Zerubbabel leads them. Remember, they rebuild the altar, the temple, they establish the worship of God, and people's hearts are aligned in worshiping God. And even though there's opposition, it's a good beginning. But now when we get to chapter 7, it's like 50, maybe 60 years later, and we find out that God's people might be in God's place, enjoying worshiping God there in Jerusalem at the temple. But man, their hearts aren't in a good place. They're far from God, and they need a heart reset. And so God in his grace raises up the right man, a godly man, a priest named Ezra. And, and he did exactly what God's people needed doing. Here's what we know about Ezra, this descendant of Aaron, the very first high priest. Chapter 7, verse 10 tells us this. For Ezra had devoted himself to what? To study and observance. So observance means he didn't just know it, he did it. Observance of what? Of the law of the Lord. So that would be the, the first five books of the Bible. God's commands, all 613. He knew those, he studied those, and he also taught the decrees and laws of God's law in Israel. That's Ezra. And so he was God's, Appointed leader, he was in a sense the spiritual doctor that was going to do this spiritual cardioversion on the people of God. And I love how Kidner, the great commentator, says it. Man, he was eminently qualified because what he taught, he first lived. And what he lived, he first made sure was in the scriptures. A great model for all who would lead in God's family, whether you're a parent a pastor, a small group leader, anybody called to give influence to others. So Ezra's on the scene, along with many others that came down from Babylon to Jerusalem. And right away, those who had already been there recognized him as the leader. And after a three-day rest period, the leadership came to him and gave a report. And the report pointed out a significant problem. Turn your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9. 
Grab your table of contents, kind of just left of the book of Psalms. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, okay? Ezra, chapter 9. Look at the problem here in verses 1 and 2. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring people with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. So the problem, what it's not, is an interracial marriage. That's not the issue. The issue was their unfaithfulness. And so they had married, and their marriages with these people, these women who served these other gods, had brought about where they were doing the same things that these Canaanite people were doing, which were detestable. When you get to Psalm 106, verse 35 and following, gives an overview of the history, it starts talking about these detestable things. And guys, what it says is, these Canaanites, these Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, their idolatry was such that they actually didn't sacrifice just animals to their gods. They sacrificed their own flesh and blood, their, their sons and their daughters. Israel was to be distinct, set apart, a holy nation. And they were to be a light out of their distinctiveness, set apartness for God, by God, to be a light that shines to the nations so that they would receive God's resetting grace and salvation. And the worst of it was the officials led the way in this unfaithfulness. And so now the holy people of God are no longer any different from the world around them. That's not the stuff of a reset heart. A reset heart is distinctive from the world so that we're able to point the world to our one and holy God. But they were just like him. They'd accommodated. The law was clear. Deuteronomy 7. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For, because, they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And so the consequences of these actions were severe. He talks about the anger of God is going to be against you. The, the like, case study of this is the life of Solomon with his 700 wives and 300 concubines, and how his foreign wives with their idol worship led his heart astray so that he actually turned away from God. Didn't just allow them to worship those gods quietly on the side, but he actually built altars around his kingdom to promote the worship of these pagan gods. And God's anger was such that he tore the kingdom from his hands. You can read all about it in 1 Kings chapter 11. So the teaching and the history was front and center in, in Ezra's mind and heart. And that helps us understand how he responds to it. And, and as we see his response, we see the solution. 
the solution to what it is that one who one time loved God, follow God, has now left God, accommodated to all the practices of the world that we're, we're no longer just uh, in the world, we're of the world. The very thing that Jesus prayed that we wouldn't be in John 17. What do we do? The solution is seen in Ezra's response. And the first thing he does is he mourns. There's this emotional connection and it's graphic. Look at verse 3. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exile. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. What's the solution to unfaithfulness? What's the solution from accommodating our lives, our values, our lifestyles, so that we don't look anything different than than the world? It's to come to grips with our sin and to mourn over it. That's where he began. And he stayed in that space. I find that when I'm in this place, like I want to make things right, quick with God, quick with someone that I've offended. I rarely want to stay in that space of coming to grips with the horror of what I've done against a holy God who's been kind and gracious enough that he would send his only son on the cross to die for me and I would treat him like that and treat other people like that. I kind of want to move on to that confession part. But he sits in it until the evening sacrifice. He's horrified. He's shocked. And his response, interestingly, starts a domino fall. So this is fascinating. His horror, his response, his shock, his tearing out his hair, His weeping and wailing. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. God's man, who knew God's word, lived God's word, was ravaged when he saw what was going on. And didn't just say it was their problem, but understood it was his problem as well. That began to change the people. So his brokenness over sin, his brokenness over what had happened was caught. It moved the very people who'd gathered around the temple and saw him throwing himself down and pulling out his hair and tearing his cloak and his tunic. And maybe there are so many people that don't understand sin because they haven't met a, a follower of God who has been in this space. God help us. God help us. So he mourned, but he also confessed. There's this whole matter of confession. His confession begins in verses 6 through 9. He acknowledges their guilt, but at the same time, he acknowledges God's grace time after time throughout history. Ezra identifies with the people. He doesn't talk about their sin. It's our failure. It's our guilt. It's our sins. And, Aaron, and his, his confession here in verses 6 through 9 gives this kind of national over history confession where he's confessing these sins of the fathers. What is a sin of the father? 
They are the things that the fathers, the ancestors did. And they, and they continue to find themselves in the succeeding generation. The generational sin patterns haven't been broken. It keeps happening. This turning to idols, it keeps happening. And he's confessing that. And it's been the kings. And it's been the religious leaders. And he says, I, I, I'm at fault in this. And he confesses it. And the worst of it, he realizes all of that rebellion is on the heels of God's kindness in leaving a remnant in bringing him back to Jerusalem, allowing them to gather around God's presence in giving them relief from their bondage and slavery in Babylon, allowing them to reset not only themselves in the land and God's presence there at the temple, but resetting their lives in the promised land. And so he confesses chapter 9 verse 10. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servant, the prophets, when you said, the land you're entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. So there's mourning. There's confession. And the third leg of this stool of turning back to God and resetting our hearts to his is obedience, is aligning our lives with God's word. So this is the three-legged stool of repentance, of turning back to God. The, the story of the Bible is we are created by God, for God, in relationship with God, and we broke it off. And the way back is through repentance, is turn around and have this change of mind that leads to change of action. To go, this is bad. This is what I've done. It's horrific. And so I'm going to mourn over that. And I'm going to confess that. And I'm committing myself to walk with you, God, and to take your word as law and order and life for me. That, that, that's what faith is. Taking God at his word, obeying his commands, believing his promises. And so obedience, what it looked like in the 5th century BC for the people of God to align their hearts to God's word. Well, what it took is a pretty shocking story. We pick it up in verse 2 of chapter 10. We meet up with a guy named Shechani. He's one of the leaders. And he acknowledges on behalf of the people that what you said is true. We're guilty and we need to make it right. And he says, I believe there is still hope. Verse 2, chapter 10. And the hope is that we would realign our hearts to God's, reset it, and our lives to God's truth, his word. 
And so he proposes that we make a covenant before God to send these wives and their children back to their families. And that we would live our lives according to God's word. And so he says, I I think we should do this. And he hints that actually Ezra's talked about it because he says in verse 3, with the counsel of my Lord, this is what I think we should do. So I've heard what you said. I agree with what you said. And so let's do it. Let it be done according to the law. But at the end of the day, he says, Ezra, it's in your hands. You're a spiritual leader. This is a big decision. You just need to know we're going to stand behind you and be courageous because we're with you. Even if you pick the hard road, which you know what the hard road was, is not blinking at it, not pretending it didn't happen, but dealing with it, according to God's word, sending their wives and the children back to their families. So Ezra acted and asked the leadership, the priests, the Levites, and all the people to swear on an oath that they would do just that. And then he went on with his mourning, going to a guy's house to continue fasting and praying and mourning. And then the next day, a proclamation was made throughout the land that in three days there's to be a sacred holy assembly where everybody who is of Israel comes. And if you don't come, you're no longer part of Israel. So that they could together deal with this matter. So three days later, they come. Why are we getting together? Why are we, You didn't hear? Dude, like what we're doing, this is bad. We've been found out and we got to deal with this. So it says that they were distressed because of their sins and they were distressed because of the weather because it was the rainy season. So we read and pick up the story in chapter 10, verse 10. And Ezra now meets the people at the solemn assembly and he says, you've been unfaithful. Now he's telling everybody this, what only some of them knew and heard. You've been unfaithful. You've married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord God of your ancestors and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice. You are right. We must do as you say. But there are many people here, and it's a rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Beside, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we've sinned greatly in this thing. In other words, it's spread across the whole land. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who's married a foreign woman come at a set time, along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan son of Ahasahel, and Josiah, son of Tikvah, supported by Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, opposed this. So the exiles did as we proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, in other words, three months later, finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. So, hard passage. Like, this is one of those passages like, who assigned this and why did I sign up for this passage? I wish I had the next one. Hard passage. And it's good to remember, this was a hard passage for the people back then. It's not hard because we're modern, more nor more intellectually enlightened. It was difficult. They were in distress 
over what was going to happen, the implications of their sin before God. Their implications of what was going on for assume that they loved these women and children. Families torn apart. People weren't all in favor of it. Now, I have to acknowledge there are a few scholars who say, actually, what was proposed here by uh, Shechaniah and Ezra was not of God because God clearly hates divorce. In fact, that was the very thing that was taught by the prophet Malachi, who is a contemporary of Ezra, and it's read clearly in Malachi 2.10. God hates divorce. So obviously, if God hates divorce, and they're telling these people to send them away, which is as if they're divorcing them, these things can't be God's will. The interesting thing is, when you look at Malachi chapter 2, the divorce that he hates contextually is the divorce of these Jewish men who divorced their Jewish wives to marry these pagan women who would lead them astray into idol worship. There's no indication from the text that it was displeasing or a misunderstanding of the law, but of course that's an argument from silence. Shechaniah claims it was grounded in the law. Chapter 10, verse 3. Ezra, the guy who studied and knew the law, says this is God's will. So I take it as a hard word from God. And for the people to whom this was written to, it was was written to them. It's for us, but to them, this is what it meant. As they reset their heart to God and their lives to his word, send their wives, their foreign wives and children who were idolaters away. Now, the interesting thing is, that actually was a gracious move, as I understand the law. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 13, there's this extended section that talks about what happens if a person, even in your own family, leads you astray to worship idols, that that's a capital offense, and you're to stone that person to death, and you're not to cover it, you're not to ignore it, you're to deal with it. And if it's in your family, you're to be the first person who picks up the stone and executes God's judgment. So they don't turn you away from God. So I, I feel like this was a gracious, this was a gracious move. They could still live and go back very likely to their families. Now here's what we know though. That there are people in the Old Testament who weren't Jews by bloodline, by their own worship of Jehovah God, the covenant God, who actually get integrated into the people of God, into Israel. They become these God-fearers, these proselytes. They, they convert people like Moses' wife or like Rahab the prostitute or Ruth the Moabitess or the many people in, in Esther chapter 8 who come and join with the Jewish people. What we do know is it took three months, which means they settled with extreme care case by case realizing that some of these women may have turned their hearts to worship God and at the end of the day here's what we know and though the the sin was great meaning I think it was spread around the people of God with the peoples around the people of God all we have and it's not a small number but it's not a huge number out of the 29,000 scholars say were existed living there in the time only 113 names are listed. And that's kind of a wild thing. 
that all the names of the guys who married foreign wives are listed at the end of chapter 10. 113 out of 29,000, if that number is correct, 0.4, no, 0.04%, not even a half a percent. But, you know, we want to know, well, what happened to the children? You know, well, the, the Bible's not answering that question. The Bible's answering the question, what happens to us when we lose our way, accommodate our lives, blend in with the world around us, and start worshiping all kinds of things that aren't God? That's what this passage is dealing with. As it relates to those women, I found great solace in remembering the story of Hagar, Genesis 16, who's thrown out of Abraham's camp by Abraham and Sarah, right? And, and God meets her in her misery. And she calls that place Bir Lahoi Ra, because it's the God who sees me in my distress as I've been cast out of this family to fend for myself. So, this wasn't written to us, but it's for us. So what does it mean for God's people today? How do we apply this? And the first question is, does this mean if I'm married to a person who's not a believer, that the first thing I should be thinking right now is I need to file for divorce? And, un and that's not funny. But unequivocally, the answer from the New Testament is no. 1 Corinthians 7 1 Peter 3, don't have time to get into those passages. Speak directly to this issue. I'll just allude to a couple of sentences in those. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer, willing to live with him, her, she must not divorce her, him. So here, here's the deal. He says, how do you know? Husband, you won't save that wife. And wife, you might save that woman. You have a sanctifying impact in their life. Not that you save them, but, but the fact of your presence and your heart attached to God's heart, that there's grace emanating in your life, through your life. In fact, that's the very argument that Peter makes to an unbelieving spouse who says you have the power through your gentle, quiet spirit and godly life to win your husband over without a word. So you don't have to nag. You don't have to be the Holy Spirit. You don't have to preach. You just live your life like that. And I remember my friend Jamie talking about his wife, Debbie, who came to faith first and it rocked his world. He was not there, but he loved everything that he saw in his wife whose heart was now Jesus' heart. And he was drawn to that. And not long after, he surrendered his life to Christ as well. So it doesn't mean get a divorce if you're married to someone who's not a believer. You stay in there. The Bible's clear if that unbelieving spouse deserts you, you're free to remarry. But you stay in there. And, and you have your heart connected to Christ so that the kindness of Christ through you can bring about a heart change in your spouse. I think there's implications for dating here, for engagement. You're engaged to a person who doesn't belong to Christ. The scriptures are clear. Romans 7, verse 13, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. We are to marry a person who belongs to God, who is in the faith. Because the union of a married couple in God's original plan is that we come together, not just physically, not just emotionally, but spiritually, one flesh, one spirit. Malachi 2, 9 and 10 speaks of that very truth. 
And so you can't have the marriage that God wants for you if you don't share a loyalty for Christ, a goal of knowing and loving and serving him and joining him in this world. And maybe the differences don't seem so big right now. Maybe you're pretty convinced that, you know, I've heard some stories about that this person who eyes wide open married this person and, and now they're a believer. And I can tell you a hundred others. It didn't work out that way. The scripture's clear. If you're engaged to a non-believer, you should break it off. That's a harsh word for you right now. But I want to just say, that's God's truth. That's a good word meant to protect you right now. I think it has implications of dating. Who are we dating? You know, the last person you date, I always tell high school kids this, the last person you date is the person you're going to marry. So be, be careful. Be careful of your associations. God's people had experienced God's kindness. They were in God's place, Jerusalem. They had the temple, the sacrifices, the worship, but their hearts were still far away. They needed desperately a heart reset. And so don't get confused because you're listening to me now. Don't be confused that you walk into one of our campuses. Don't be confused because you're going to go to a life group or a class or whatever it is that you're good. Here's what I always told students. I said, look, sleeping in the garage tonight does not make you a car. And, and understand the difference between going through religious activity and having your heart changed by the grace of God. There's a great verse in the scripture that says, Romans 12, verse 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And the reality is there's a whole bunch of us who've been squeezed in the mold. There's a whole bunch of us who have spiritual aphid and we don't have a clue that's going on. Like the guy I heard about last week. Went to the doctor, kind of knew there's some stuff going on in his heart, but didn't realize the extent of it. The doctor put him on a monitor. He said, every time you hear, feel your heart going out of rhythm, you just press this button. Pressed it four times in a day. Felt pretty good about being able to identify four times. Went to the doctor to find out it actually went off some 30 times and one of those times for about four hours that he didn't have a clue about. He certainly didn't press the button at that time. The people of God, after five generations of returning to the land, didn't know that their hearts needed resetting. And maybe you've come to this service, to this message, and that's exactly where you are. You didn't realize it. You, you, need, you need the patch of God's word, the current of God's spirit. You need the community of faith like those nurses and doctors that attend to people when they have this shock treatment. You need that. So I want to know, are you, are you in the word, devoted like Ezra, studying it that you might live it? Are you in proximity to the teaching of God's word? Is that important to you? Or, 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 you know, you want to be entertained right now. I, I, I want to make sure that we're in God's word, hearing God's word, that we would live God's word. This is the easy part for me to teach it. The hard part is to live it. 
Am I in relationship with people? The beautiful story of Ezra 9 and 10 is it's a community reset. It's not just a man's reset. It's not just 113 men's reset. It's the whole people of God. And there are people that stood together and covenanted together. And that's what you need. Do you have that? People encourage you, stand with you, come together and lock arms and say, we commit our lives to Christ, to doing his word and following his ways and joining his mission in this world, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly before him. So where do you need that shock treatment to reset your heart? What attitudes, what behaviors, what addictions need to be reset? This is a time for us to just sit in this teaching and allow the Spirit to use the Word to jolt our hearts. But may we be jolted to a place not of shock and horror, but jolted in a place of beating hearts with God. Let's pray. So Father God, we thank you for Jesus who makes that actually possible. Jesus who dealt with all the arrhythmia of our spiritual hearts, all the hardness of our hearts, all, all the, the, the blockages of our hearts that keep us from loving you. And Lord, we just thank you that there's forgiveness for our unfaithfulness. We thank you that you are the perfect priest that Ezra was pointing to, who not only identified who not only brought a sacrifice, but you were the perfect sacrifice. And Lord, your heart beat here for 33 years and you identified with us in all the vicissitudes of life and all the temptations. And yet there wasn't a time when your heart wasn't beating perfectly with the Father. And so we bless you for that. We find our saving grace in your perfect sacrifice and we remember how your heart was ravaged on the, car, on the cross pierced with the sword, how it went flatlined dead that we might have new life through you. And so, Father God, we thank you for Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your death and sacrifice on the cross. And we pray that you'd reset our hearts, that you'd reset our marriages, that you'd reset our families, that you reset our attitudes and our aspirations our relationships, that we would be a set-apart people that aren't peculiar because we're caught up in some legalistic pursuit of you, but that we would be peculiar because, Jesus, you are living through us and they keep meeting you and your grace continues to change lives. So, Father, help us to have lights that shine before men in such a way that they might see our good works and glorify you, our Father, in heaven. In Christ's name, God's people said, Amen.